HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. At the end of every show, I ask all of my guests, what can, we, can, what can listeners do to get involved on a particular issue? And the response, invariably, is A, vote with your wallet, and B, call your elected representative. Well, today, I'm pleased to welcome one such elected official, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, Democratic Representative of the 3rd District in Oregon, who has been a longstanding champion of food system reform issues, something that has been all too rare in Congress. Representative Blumenauer, welcome to Eating Matters. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, so the 3rd District is where exactly? Can you just give us a sense of how big of an area you you represent, the number of people? Well, it's... It is most of Portland, Oregon. Okay. Uh, starts in Portland's West Hills and goes east to uh, include um, most of Portland and on to uh, uh, smaller towns, Gresham, and to the top of Mount Hood. And and how long have you been involved in politics? What is uh, your background kind of before you were represented, were elected? Well, I first began came involved in politics as a college student when I helped lead the effort to lower the voting age. Um, I organized and chaired a campaign in Oregon. I testified before the United States Senate on the 18-year-old vote. And two years later, I was in the Oregon legislature. 
which was a terrific experience. And then I subsequently spent time in local government uh, the last 10 years as Portland's Commissioner of Public Works, dealing with transportation and land use and environment. Mm -hmm. And then I have spent uh, 22 years in Congress. Wow. So you're a veteran. (laughs) I'm a lifer. Um, So when and why did you seriously get involved in food system reform issues? I mean, being from an urban area certainly doesn't seem like it would be a top issue for your district. Well, actually, um, people in Portlandia care a lot about food. (laughs) True. Uh, uh, It is, uh, there has been a vibrant restaurant scene here in Portland for years. Uh, I was in, when I was in the Oregon legislature, I was involved with efforts enacting uh, our historic land use planning, which uh, in large measure was designed to protect forest and farmland. Um, in local government, uh, being keenly interested in uh, activities to prom- to protect local food sources. Uh, part of our land use challenges was uh, to provide uh, agriculture actually within the urban growth boundary. Um, and I, from the moment I was in Congress, have been deeply concerned with our food and agricultural policy. We just pay too much to the wrong people to grow the wrong food the mm-hmm. wrong way in the wrong places. Um, and we've it compounds problems with nutrition and hunger. Um, so it's been it's been an area that I have been involved with for years and it's something that we as time goes on I feel more strongly about uh, that it is so important mm-hmm. to get these policies right in terms of uh, nutrition and health for our citizens uh, and and for the future of the planet. And are you on any ag committees right now? No. Uh, I serve on the Ways and Means Committee mm-hmm. in Congress, uh, but that has not stopped me from being involved with developing food and farm policies. Uh, every a year I've been in Congress, I've uh, sponsored amendments to try and change uh, some subsidization that I think is uh, misplaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have strongly supported uh, changing the environmental provisions. The conservation programs uh, really don't effectively promote conservation. Right. Um, we have been fighting uh, poor decisions, uh, for instance, uh, what's happened in places like North Carolina with hog lagoons in the aftermath of uh, intense hurricanes that uh, just overflow and poison the land. Right. So every year there's been things that uh, have caught my attention that I've worked on. There's always uh, something. It, <laughs> there, there is. Uh, but it came to a head uh, about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reflecting on the difficulty we had with reforming the last farm bill, we we got some minor provisions in, and we got uh, in terms of conservation and nutrition and whatnot. But um, it just seemed to me that we didn't really have an appropriate vision for what the farm bill really should be, and instead it was dictated by a 
wide range of people who have a vested interest in the current programs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, like, you know, transition to the farm bill specifically. I mean, I know that this is something you've been incredibly active on. Um, and I love that you're not on any ag committees, but yet you are so involved. I think that's one of the things I find most refreshing. Um, in addition to the fact that with regards to the farm bill, you have said that um, with its reauthorization, you've said that Americans deserve one that resets spending priorities, promotes healthy food and provides in- innovative performance based solutions to environmental challenges. Now that it is officially passed, how'd we do? <laughs> uh, I would grade it uh, about a D plus. Okay. Uh, there were, again, there were some provisions that were in there. Yep. Um, we're working uh, a little bit in terms of performance-based uh, environmental uh, areas. There's some things for sustainable agriculture, uh, but basically, um, Big investments continue to be agriculture from the past. Big commodities, uh, 94% of the support uh, is to a handful of states producing a handful of the commodities, corn, soy, uh, sugar. Uh, it, uh, It shortchanges the majority of states and the overwhelming number of farmers and ranchers. Uh, we actually spent a couple of years just going around in Oregon and elsewhere asking people what would the farm bill look like if it was just for you. Is that your Sing Your Own Farm Bill project? Yeah, uh, it was great fun. Uh, (laughs) Over 5,000 people uh, helped us uh, with feedback, and uh, we produced uh, a farm bill that I was very, very proud of. uh, it had titles in conservation uh, to uh, cut cap and clarify the farm subsidies, uh, nutrition uh, for uh, food waste, uh, the future of farmers, um, regional food systems, the first animal welfare title. It was great fun to put this together, um, and I think, uh, modestly, it's a blueprint for where American agriculture needs to go. And I think we're going to be, we're starting now because we've got another, uh, in five years, we've got another farm bill in front of us and we can do a lot better. Right. Better start now because it seems like if history has taught us anything, it's, it takes a while. (laughs) Well, and, and it's important to help people focus Mm-hmm. on these elements. Most people just don't pay any attention to the farm bill. But in fact, it's the most important health bill that this Congress, this last Congress, considered. Right. Um, we're, we're subsidizing a diet that makes Americans sick. It's the most important environmental bill. Nine percent of the greenhouse gases come from agriculture. Yeah. And issues of water quality, um, uh, air quality. So we need to do a better job of engaging people with what the stakes are. I mean, like the, the thing about the farm bill is that it's always been seen as kind of like a special interest bill and um, parochial. And I mean, how do you work to change the perception of that? How do you engage people? Do you think it's through well, issues like it, the environment? Part of it is to help people understand the vast sweep 
of the Farm Bill. The Department of Agriculture is the only department in the federal government that can build a community from the ground up. Uh, housing, economic development uh, as in, goes beyond just what happens with food and farm. Uh, the the notion here that the the farm bill is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, there's a big battle over whether we're we have enough money for nutrition, but we are uh, having lavish spending on a crop insurance program that frankly doesn't work for most farmers and ranchers. Oregon, uh, my home state, is a huge agricultural state, mm-hmm. but our agricultural base is very, very diverse, and most of the farmers and ranchers can't use the crop insurance program. But that's also true for Florida and California, California, the number one agricultural state in Oregon, in the country. Mm-hmm. So we need to do a better job of helping people understand the sweep what the stakes are, and the fact that we have choices that can make a big difference. So there's a lot, obviously, entailed in the Farm Bill, and a lot of people, there have been calls to um, consider splitting out SNAP from the Mm -hmm. overall bill, and that is, we know, Mm -hmm. like, what, 80% of the total funding? Mm -hmm. Where do you fall on that issue? Where do you fall? Well... Do you think it would be helpful? Yeah, do you think it would be helpful? Yeah, having having the the nutrition elements be a part of the farm bill historically has been a a way to unite uh, urban uh, interests, non-farm districts, uh, with the agricultural sector. Um, But too often, I think, people who are deeply concerned about meeting the nutritional needs of poor people um, allowed themselves to be held hostage. Actually, uh, survey after survey shows that uh, SNAP benefits, you know, food stamps, Mm -hmm. is much more popular than agricultural subsidies. Um, It's, uh, but it's, but it's been a mixed bag. Um, I think in the final analysis, it doesn't really make that much difference if we can help people understand what their stakes are in a food and farm bill that meets their needs. Um, Marion Nussel, um, the, the great uh, uh, professor at NYU on nutrition, mm-hmm. uh, written, I don't know. Former Florida Eating Matters guest. <laughs> uh, I, I would I expect so. <laughs> has, a, has, a, has a terrific essay entitled, The Farm Bill Drove Me Crazy. Uh, A few years back, uh, she realized, although she's been writing about these things for years, she really didn't fully understand the mechanics of the farm bill. So uh, she decided to do what any professor would do to try and understand a subject. She was going to teach a seminar on it. Um, And and halfway through, uh, she, she realized that that nobody understood the farm bill. It was hopelessly complex, uh, that people understood things that related to them directly, uh, like the aforementioned crop insurance. There are people who are experts in that, uh, but it didn't go very far. The commodity programs. Uh, one year, I, uh, I just 
tried to spend an entire flight home. I fly home every week to from wow. Washington to Portland, and that's, that's a lot of travel. Uh, about a six-hour trip. I spent the entire trip trying to understand the dairy program, yeah. and I just ended up with a headache. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it is it is hopelessly complex. The need to be able to organize. That's why we did our own food and farm program uh, for legislation, which was which was to be a marker that people could organize around. Um, and I continue to think that that's is absolutely essential uh, to raise awareness and understanding um, and have a model piece of legislation that incorporates things that work for most farmers and ranchers rather than uh, intensely for the special interests. Do you think one of the ways into kind of, I mean, we know that climate change, there have been a number of reports that have come out recently that have gotten a lot of attention kind of um, talking about how dire the situation has become and where we need to go. And it's sort of starting to kind of, I think that the majority of Americans believe that climate change is is real and it's an issue and it's man-made. So this environmental movement may slowly Mm -hmm. be getting some traction. And you are one Mm -hmm. of the very few people who make the connection between, you know, the need for the food movement, the food and farm movement to join forces with the climate movement. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is like a good way in a good segue to kind of like get food on board? Well, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, we're not going to be able to meet our goals of cutting emissions in half by 2030 and to go to net zero by 2050 unless we address the emissions of agriculture. Uh, It's not just 9% of our greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture the way it's currently practiced. Uh, I mean, it's it's animals and poor poor cultivation practices that create these greenhouse gases. Uh, opportunities going forward um, to actually practice what's termed regenerative agriculture, uh, making it sustainable, being able to do a better job with conservation, to be able to actually capture and sequester carbon, not just reduce the emissions, but actually to be able to reverse it by capturing carbon. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something that we can do that will uh, actually improve productivity while it helps us fight climate change. Um, it's, it also expands the group of people who care. Um, the, the army of, of activists that are being involved with food and farm policy are very persuasive. Uh, one of my favorite uh, battalions in this battle uh, are the celebrity chefs. Uh, people who really uh, understand the multifacets of having a sound food and farm policy. And and they are voices that really are are quite persuasive, um, but working with students. Uh, And frankly, most farmers and ranchers want to be involved in this fashion. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they are shortchanged with the conservation programs. Uh, We don't do enough to help them. Uh, deal with water conservation and to be able to uh, uh, help in their efforts at reducing 
carbon emissions. And frankly, the agricultural sector is being pounded as a result of climate change. The yeah. droughts that we're seeing in the United States and Australia, I mean, it's driving farmers to despair. Uh, suicides are up. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're very much feeling the brunt of of climate change, there's no doubt. And I think that there's a huge willingness um, amongst farmers to make mm-hmm. a lot of these changes. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do, however, need the tools and, you know, assistance mm-hmm. to do so. We're going to take a really quick commercial break um, and hear a word from our sponsors, but we will continue our conversation with the congressman when we get back. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources the highest quality and most unique cheeses and other products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia, and imports them to the United States, many under the Mitika brand. If it's Mitika, it's got to be incredible. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio has plenty more. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I'm the host of Feast Your Ears here on HRN. My show explores the world of food through storytelling. Every week, I talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook. You can find Feast Your Ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. One of the things I want to talk to you about, you know, we talk about, um, to your last point, I'm sure you saw this. The There were students from the Sunrise Movement who, of course, mm-hmm. are very, like, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to lead the way on climate change for the next generation. They made the news by confronting Senator Feinstein a few weeks back about her stance on climate change and specifically the new Green Deal. And, I mean, she, I, she said, and this was a, a cringeworthy moment for me, but, um, you know, the exchange was essentially like, you know, the students are asking for her to take action, saying like, you know, that's your duty as a representative official. And she's like, how old are you? And the girl says 16. And she's like, you didn't vote for me. And, you know, (laughs) and I love, I mean, I love Senator Feinstein, but that was like an issue where I I cringed and I feel like her press secretary cringed also. (laughs) But I'm wondering like, Mm -hmm. how are you, what are your thoughts on how the government can best address concerns of younger people like this who might not be old enough to vote yet, but will certainly inherit the brunt effects of climate change? And, And that's the point. The teenagers today that uh, are not quite yet old enough to vote are the people that are going to be paying the price. Yeah. Uh, and their energy and enthusiasm, I think, is part of what is necessary. The notion of the Green New Deal is to do something on an order of magnitude of what America did a couple generations ago uh, with Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the the New Deal, the mobilization to win World War II. Uh, in the 30s and, and into World War II, America did amazing things. We came together. We uh, rescued the economy from the near global collapse. We mobilized the forces to win uh, against the forces of oppression in World War II. Um, we did extraordinary things coming together, and we found the resources, the energy, and the resolve. And that's exactly what we need to do uh, to be able to deal with climate change. Right. Now, uh, I uh, helped uh, 
uh, the the folks write the agricultural provisions for the Green New Deal. Yeah, you're uh, because that's that is part of the scope and the urgency and is entirely within our capacity. And in all fairness to the senator, I mean, she she raised great points. It, you know, I mean, it was doesn't have the political capital and, um, you know, it was just a resolution. It won't pass, but whatever. I mean, I think that it, to me, at least in my opinion, it represented, it just represented like a big plan that it wasn't legislation, but it's like, here's where we need to go. We need something well, super bold. And this is right. what, it, this is like a, a start. Well, and, and that is frankly what I did with my food and farm bill. What I, I worked on for several years, mm-hmm. it, only a small part of that found its way into this farm bill, but we have a template, uh, a, a model legislation that I think uh, in, can make a big difference in the next farm bill. Yeah. Uh, we need to have this sense of urgency. We need to have uh, aspirational efforts. But what I, I have seen with food and farm policy and uh, dealing with climate is that we're watching minds be changed. We're watching more and more people be engaged. Uh, And if things, if we are all doing our job, uh, these are the sorts of things that we can in fact do um, in this decade to be able to meet the objectives uh, of the Green New Deal. It's not hammered into legislation and nothing's going to pass the Republican Senate and with Trump in the White House, mm-hmm. but we can set the stage. We're working in communities around the country. The 50 largest American metropolitan areas are moving on these policies. States, uh, California has done a great job with their food and farm policy. Um, we're watching uh, this get traction, and when we get a better Senate and a new president, I think these pieces can fall in place if we have our eyes on the bigger picture. Not to sound like a skeptic, but um, or not a skeptic, a, um, sure, that's a, okay. a pessimist. He's, he's <laughs> I've been covering these issues for long enough to be pessimistic, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, no, but, okay, so in thinking about the, the Green New Deal, right, like, um, well, I, I just heard an interview with Senator Lamar Alexander, Republican of, of Tennessee, and um, I want to talk about his new proposal, the a new Manhattan Project um, for clean energy, which is sort of like a response to the Democrats' Green New Deal. But one of the things that struck me in hearing him talk about his new, you know, this sort of proposed um, idea is that, you know, he literally said that the new Green Deal focused on, and I quote, cow burps. And I, you know, we all know this is burps is not really what he wanted to say, but it it went viral, I think, on Twitter. And like, this was a big soundbite that AOC wants to focus. This legislation is like anti-cow, basically. Um, yeah. And well, I mean, it's true you know, that it's, it's not. Well, no, no, that's not not true, but it is true that that the meat industry is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas pollutions, and I think it highlighted the fact that there's still a major rift between people don't draw a connection between the two, and they don't want to talk about almost agriculture at all. So how do you work to to shift the minds of people who are not even, not close to there yet? Well, I think the strength that we have is that everybody eats. Mm Mm-hmm. And at some level, the majority of Americans understand 
that the heavily subsidized industrial agricultural model is not serving their interests. We're watching the fragility of family farms and ranchers where they're, they're going bankrupt, they're being stressed by large producers, um, but there are better models that are uh, being uh, utilized and gaining uh, adherence in terms, in terms of regenerative agriculture. It's a big issue in Iowa right now that uh, people are starting to understand that the industrial uh, agricultural model is shortchanging them. Uh, I've reintroduced our Pollinator Protection Act. Uh, we're, we're watching huge problems with having uh, pollinators to be able to protect uh, American agriculture. I mean, these, this is essential mm-hmm. uh, for one out of every three forkfuls of food. It's almost $200 billion internationally. Mm-hmm. And we're watching uh, the loss of bees. We're watching... Uh, actually the collapse of insect populations. Uh, One quarter of the world's insects could be gone in 10 years. We've already seen massive reductions in Germany, for instance. So these elements that people are seeing um, are starting to mobilize attention. Uh, And the fact that most farmers and ranchers are cheated by the current system. They, They don't get money for conservation because too much of it is misdirected to large industrial operations and not to smaller scale that could better utilize it and have requirements that they actually protect the environment. Uh, This is something that is not uh, pie in the sky. This is something that directly affects uh, the agricultural sector in stress. Most people have great Uh, reverence for family farmers and ranchers and having humane treatment of animals, having better nutrition, dealing with air and water quality. I mean, these are are things that are understandable if if people will stop and look at it. And that's not something that is unrealistic. And these are the sorts of things that will move us along this path. Um, just quickly, can you tell us what you are, what the what is in the proposed um, Save America's Pollinate Save America's Pollinators Act? Sure. Well, what we're trying to do is to deal with these neonicotinoids that um, are have been linked to insect deaths, particularly as it relates to uh, bees. Um, what- they've been banned in Europe. Uh, what Can you just tell us what neonicotinoids are, just so our listeners who don't know? Um, it's a uh, it's a, uh, a pesticide mm-hmm. that has broad applications. Uh, we watch, for example, in uh, suburban Portland, a massive uh, bumblebee die-off, and it's linked to the application of these neonicotinoids. Um, uh, it's something that, as I mentioned, the uh, European Union has banned. Uh, what my legislation would do is to prohibit its use unless the, an independent panel of experts determines that it's safe. Um, and by the way, if it's killing uh, bees and other insects, it's probably not too good for human beings either. Um, we've got a tremendous response from the public, uh, and we're working to build on that 
experience in, in Europe and the growing awareness uh, to see if we can move that legislation in this Congress. Um, okay, so I know that we need we're a little press for time, so I've got a couple more questions, if that's okay with you, mm-hmm. um, even sure. though I could chat forever. <laughs> You're like, no, <laughs> time. Um, one of my questions is, uh, on your in your role leading the House Ways and Means Trade Subcommittee, I want to talk about trade and food. More than half of the fresh fruit and almost a third of fresh vegetables in the U.S. now comes from other countries, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, and this is just expected to continue to grow. And you talk a lot about, you know, the fact that we're not growing the right kind of food in the right places. I think this maybe is, you know, is kind of like an example of that. But what do you see the role of trade policies in supporting and encouraging our farmers to grow the right kind of food? Well, part of it is to make sure that they are treated equitably. Uh, there are some markets that we that we have difficulty uh, securing access to. Uh, the sort of the policies of the Trump administration, with their drive-by tariffs, uh, puts uh, agricultural producers at risk. And it's not just soybeans; it's a it's a problem in terms of, of uh, the fruits uh, that uh, are exported from Oregon, for instance. But there are other issues that deeply concern me. Um, One of them has to do with the integrity of organic foods. Uh, We're watching significant portions of, um, you know, organic uh, blackberries um, being imported from Europe uh, um, with candidly, uh, I think, little evidence that the strict organic standards that we, ha- that we employ in the United States mostly, now there's some questions, as you know, about how um, some of the organic milk, is it really uh, beat the standards? But uh, I have uh, grave questions, grave questions about things that are being produced uh, in Eastern Europe, for instance, um, in vast quantities meet our standards. And that's an area that I plan on uh, investigating with the uh, subcommittee, being able to make sure that our uh, American farmers that do follow the rules mm-hmm. uh, have a chance to be able to make their case and that we have stronger standards uh, to protect the consumer. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask earlier about is I've been I covered recently um, the renewable fuel standard, which is... I'm sure you can agree the sexiest of, of policy issues <laughs> out there today. But, um, you know, you mentioned that people in Oregon are, you know, or not Oregon, uh, are in Iowa are kind of starting to realize that a lot of these um, current ag policies aren't serving them. And certainly when I think about corn and ethanol, I think about right. Iowa. So I'm wondering if you have a stance on where we need to go from here. It seems to be an issue that so far a lot of the Democratic presidents presidential hopefuls for 2020 are shying away, you know, they shying away from yeah. saying that it needs reform. Yeah. Well, uh, as a, as a practical matter, there's real question whether or not, uh, these, uh, fuels actually reduce, uh, they don't, uh, <laughs> uh the, that they're, that they, that they produce, uh, as much energy as they save. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's it. And, 
and we have so much of our agricultural production uh, diverted to something that we just burn up. And it poses problems in uh, states like Iowa, uh, because that that has uh, makes uh, is part of what makes the overall productivity decline. There's a uh, there's a dead zone in the mouth of the Mississippi River, uh, the size of Delaware. Um, it weakens uh, soil health. Uh, producing uh, more, uh, using more uh, chemical inputs, uh, and moving away from higher value uh, agricultural products that are not as hard on the environment. Um, and, it's, and it is indeed a, a heavy subsidy. That's, that is not, uh, in my judgment, uh, the best way to help uh, farmers in Iowa or any place else, being able to get our policies right to support regenerative, sustainable agriculture, be able to uh, stop subsidizing the industrial production of corn, and instead promote conservation and the development of food, research, marketing, things that will add value to farmers in Iowa and around the country. Uh, rather than the monocrop, um, a mono uh, production of a single, mm-hmm. uh, you mono know, beans. both uh, corn and soybeans, by the way. I think there's, um, that model is not uh, going to be sustainable in the future, uh, and, and it makes uh, small and medium-sized farmers at the, at the mercy of large industrial production. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm from Brooklyn, uh, where we're broadcasting, and uh, my representatives are you know, very much in line, I'll say, with my own political values. And one of the things I found frustrating, especially during the, um, well, during any election, is the fact that I don't, I don't really know how, let's say, to get involved in issues where um, – I disagree with other people's elected representatives, right? Like during the election, I think everyone who is experienced in politics was like, don't call senators that aren't your own, for instance. So how can somebody like me, who is thankfully represented by people who, you know, whose values and priorities are in line with my own, get involved and help try to move the needle on these issues in areas um, where I'm not? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, everybody has a stake in getting these policies right. Uh, food and farm, uh, it doesn't just have to be somebody who's in one of the 30 uh, districts that have heavy agricultural production. Um, you're watching in metropolitan New York, indeed in Brooklyn, there are new methods in terms of urban agriculture. Um, uh, small farms, uh, what's going to happen with hydrophonic uh, production. Uh, the food scene in Brooklyn is pretty powerful. Uh, we've put together uh, a booklet. Uh, we call it the Fight for Food. Uh, people can go to uh, uh and be able to find a way to get a hold of a copy of it, where it's an illustrated guide about how these pieces fit together. Uh, there's no reason that people can't start 
frankly, in Brooklyn and make sure that this is an issue for each of your uh, members of Congress and people who are running for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with nutrition, dealing with conservation, dealing with climate change and agriculture um, is a powerful element in our future, and it doesn't come up in most campaigns. Yeah. Well, you can change that. Um, it is in the presidential election. I am hopeful that when we've got, I don't know, 50 Democrats running for, for president, <laughs> uh, that there's an opportunity for people uh, to use the tools of social media and what's, what's going on around the country in terms of how people are going to distinguish. Um, and a number of these people are friends of mine. I think they've got some great ideas. Um, Elizabeth Warren, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, has some excellent ideas about farm policy. Uh, well, they all should have that. So look at what Elizabeth Warren's put out, but mm-hmm. ask Beto, uh, yeah. ask uh, uh, Joe Biden, I mean, uh, Kamala Harris. I yeah. mean, all of these people need to be focused on food and farm policy. Uh, they're all not going to win in Iowa and being able to stand firm for family farms and ranches, being able to stand firm for sustainability, for uh, the nutrition needs of Americans. And by the way, in New Hampshire, um, they are cheated by the farm bill. So, you know, why shouldn't that be a bigger issue there? Right. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. Um, Representative Lewenauer, thank you so much for coming on. And um, it was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for being such a champion for food system reform. Well, I enjoy the conversation <laughs> and look forward to continuing this with you Absolutely. and the listeners. Absolutely. Uh, because it's not going to be less important going forward. Definitely. And then one more time, where can people um, go for more information that you've put out and to follow your work in continuing to champion for a better food and farm bill? Uh, we have the, the Fight for Food uh, available through my website, earlblumenauer.com. Uh, there's also uh, material available in my uh, uh, official congressional website, um, and I invite people to dive in. Great. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show, mu- show music is by Tim Archer. Um, all of the Eating Matters episodes are available on Heritage's website uh, or as podcasts wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.